I guess maybe maybe this will be a little bit less like a teaching and more of just kind of like a possibly like a conversation starter. Um, but I, the thing that kind of felt the most kind of alive to me when I was thinking about what to share with you um, was uh, this thing that actually I talked about a couple weeks ago. Um, we had a men's meeting and I was just listening to uh, the different guys share about stuff and really kind of appreciating what they were talking about. And I kind of had this like um, this thought um, occur to me and I shared it a little bit at the end of that meeting and it's kind of it's kind of felt a little bit like useful to me over the last couple of weeks and I thought thought I could kind of like explain what I began to share there um, again um, with you guys maybe in a little bit a little bit more detail um, but it, it so to give you a little bit of context um, we were we were talking about we got talking about like the scriptures that morning and their um, their right use, their wrong use. You know, the scriptures are an interesting thing because they're this this precious gift um, given from God that is, is such a um, such a useful and edifying thing when used properly. Um, you know, so Paul could say to Timothy that like you've known the scriptures since you were a child, which are able to make you wise unto <coughs> salvation through faith. Um, but at the same time, Paul also calls them like a, a dead letter and a ministry of condemnation. And we know that the scribes and the Pharisees um, used them to puff up self and pride. And the, they used what was given to make them wise unto salvation. They used it as like a, a weapon to um, to crucify Christ with, you know, the same, the same exact book, um, the same writings. And... Um, and we were we were just kind of talking about how man man can grab the scriptures in a in a wrong way. They can use it to fill your brain with ideas, make you feel smarter than people, or make you feel confident in the things that you shouldn't feel confident in. And and um, they can do a lot of harm in that way. And yet, rightly received, rightly used, um, there there's they're one of the greatest gifts that uh, God has ever given. And um, as, as I was just kind of thinking about that, um, it, it just sort of occurred to me that I, I think the reason, one of the reasons maybe why humanity is so quick to fall into that trap, and, and it's not just the, the Jews from a couple centuries ago, it's all humanity, it's Christians right now, it's us in this room that are um, very susceptible to that. I, I think the, the reason maybe why that is so easy to fall into is because we at a really deep and fundamental level i think we we struggle to understand what our problem really is and and i i think that because we misunderstand the nature of the problem then when something is given to us as like th- th- this isn't the solution but as an aid then we will we'll misuse it if we don't understand. Like if you have some sort of disease and you think you have, I don't know, um, you think you have rheumatism, but really you have gingivitis, and then I give you like the medicine 
or the cure for, I don't know, this might not work. I give you, what's the cure for gingivitis? I give you some remedy, but you think you have something else. You're going to like put it in the wrong spot. You know what I mean? You're like, no, that was supposed to go on your teeth, but you put it on your, I should probably give up on that. But I think you get the, you get the idea. Um, I think that's like a little bit like what we do with the scriptures is like we, we know, I guess most of people who, who read the scriptures would acknowledge that something's wrong with mankind, but, um, misunderstanding the nature of the problem and the nature of the remedy, we, we, we use it wrongly, we, we apply it wrongly. Um, and, um, and it just got me thinking again about like the, the real nature of the fall and the real and true nature of our redemption or recovery or you could say our salvation out of the fall. And that's something that's, that's just on my heart a lot. That's what, you know, um, in October at the conference, that's kind of like what I was trying to share about is like what is, what is real salvation? What is true? What is truly the nature of our problem and what is truly um, the nature of like the solution or the, the, the savior, the salvation, the grace and light that God gives us to come and redeem us out of our state? Um, that, that feels so important to me, I think, because I, I feel like I – I sort of wandered around in a, 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 a just a like a, a maze of false ideas and man-made inventions about salvation that kind of mystified me for a long time. And, and, and coming to a little bit of like clarity about this has has proved really beneficial in my heart. And I, I don't say that I've attained to by any means um, perfect clarity on, on all of this, but. Um, I feel I feel like the Lord's turned me a little bit in the right direction, and I, um, so that's why these things feel important to me. But um, so so to share this sort of like it's not an analogy. I don't know what to call it. I think I called it with the, the men's meeting. I called it like a thought experiment because it's not a it's not like a prophetic picture I had or just like a thing that came in my brain and I was started thinking about it. And so I, I was describing to them, and I'll describe to you now. Like I, I had this thought of like imagine. Imagine that suddenly, like right now in this room, we all were able to see an angel, right? So I don't. There could be angels in this room, and we don't. Maybe they're listening, um, but we certainly. I don't, none of. I'm not seeing one. But what if we literally all of a sudden saw like there's times in scripture where people seem to have these like encounters where they're awake and they're seeing angels. I mean that would be. That would be crazy. So maybe he's like, I don't know, standing right over there by the stairs. And we would probably all be like instantly kind of like horrified, but like with a good kind of fear, right? Um, and I think, I'm just guessing, I've never had any experience with angels, but I, I think we would feel, we would feel fear. Um, we would feel a sense of like amazement and wonder. I think we would feel... Um, this like incredible like glory and holiness and purity and love just sort of like emanating from this like this thing this creature this being that appeared in us and like the the light the power the love the goodness the purity the holiness the everything would just be i think kind of unimaginable and wonderful and powerful and um it it would be it would kind of really really impressive right so kind of understanding that or starting from that like basis i was just asking myself like 
it's pretty clear to think about like with an angel like that appearing in our midst, we could ask ourselves like, what, why is an angel all those things? Why is, why do we feel and sense that like, you know, theoretically that like glory and love and purity and holiness um, and power and light and love. And I think the answer is pretty simple. I think that it's because of God. It's because everything that's good in the angel is because of a, a union, a fellowship, a, a indwelling life of God that is in the angel. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't think, put it another way, I don't think that if like Michael the archangel were standing over there and we were feeling all those things, we're not feeling things that are essential and inherent to Michael himself. We're feeling the fact that he is like filled with and full of and uh, the, the life and the power and the glory of God. And everything that we love and appreciate and are amazed by and think is so good and so wonderful about an angel is because... Um, he's so completely like filled um, with like like inwardly there is that God is there. You know what I mean? Like I'm reaching for all these words, right? Um, it reminds me a little bit. Like I love that story of the story of Stephen when he is is preaching to the Jews and they kill him. But there's that one little phrase in there in I think it's Acts chapter seven where it says they looked at him and he had a face like an angel. You know, and I think even in that moment, there's like there's this possibility with even humans. So if you pause right there and you say like, okay, you're standing there looking at Stephen, and something is different about him. He like looks like an angel. That's not because of something inherent in Stephen, right? That's because um, the the man was powerfully like possessed of God in that time in his life and in that moment especially that there was something of God in him that almost like was like coming out of him and they couldn't withstand his wisdom or his words. And even though they hated him and they plugged their ears and, and ran at him and killed him, yet there was kind of this outshining of something that wasn't Stephen, that was God, you know? And um, that, like everything that makes an angel good is from God. And I but I think you can actually back up and say that's true of the whole universe, right? Everything that makes anything good is God. Um it's a really simple scripture, but the one in James I think is like deeper and more profound than maybe we think where he says every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of Lights. There's no. There's nothing good. There's nothing pure. There's nothing perfect. There's nothing, nothing that isn't from Him. If God were somehow to withdraw Himself from the universe, there would be nothing. There would be nothing good left. You know what I mean? There would be nothing. We, we could go on and on about that. I think you could. Um, I mean, even in the natural creation, there is even in in a in a world of people who aren't necessarily walking with God, there's still kind of the, um, I don't know, the little, like, the, the remnants and the residue and the um, shining forths in little ways of God's goodness. Like, and anything that anybody experiences that is good, even just the the beauty of, like, the sun shining and the, like, warmth of, or comfort or 
friendship or any, anything that's in any way good has like something of God. And you take God out of the universe and like there's nothing good. There's not, there's not two sources, you know. I think that's, that's why Jesus said that somewhat strange statement when he says, why do you call me good? Not that he didn't realize he was good, but because I think he understood that the, the ruler didn't know who he was talking to, you know. Um, but I, I say all that because, like, the next part of my thought experiment is, like, okay, we're, we're standing there watching this, like, angel, and we're experiencing, like, this, like, love and glory and purity and holiness. And what if we could, what if we could observe while that angel renounced God? Like, maybe, maybe similar to, like, what Lucifer did in the beginning of sometime before... I don't know when that happened, you know, but we have, at least we have this understanding that like, that Satan wasn't always Satan, that he, like God doesn't create anything in like wickedness and, and um, torment and evil. So there's this, there's this time or this moment, kind of like the fall of man, where some of the angels somehow like turned from and renounced God, right? And like, imagine you could, you could see that in an angel standing over there and somehow, for some reason, they, they turned their back on and they rejected and they renounced that life of God. They wanted something. They didn't want to remain in that state of, of subjection and obedience and being underneath the will of God and being um, filled with and constrained by and compelled by his life. And they turned away from it. And then imagine, imagine we could just sort of see that instantly everything of God left that angel, Right? And it would no longer be an angel at that moment. It would be this horrible thing that, like, the scripture calls a demon, right? Um, and the, 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 the thing that, yeah, so this, now this demon that's standing in front of us, where God was, God is no more. And yet it still has like a life, some kind of a life. It still has an existence, right? It still has a being. It hasn't, it hasn't dissolved into nothingness. It didn't cease to exist the moment. It's still, so this thing that used to be an angel, this demon now has, has a life, has a, you could say has a will, has, has strength in some way, has uh, desires, has longings. Um, but, has all these capabilities, all these faculties, but in a creature that was meant to be filled up with God, like we had just seen a few minutes ago, but now it has, it has a will, but its will is not in subjection to God. It, it has a, a longing, but not a longing for good and righteousness and holiness. And, um, and what used to fill this angel... <laughs> Um, it is gone, and there's this horrible vacuum of darkness and every, anything and everything that's not God. And everything that's good has been taken out of this angel, and um, you get this you get this horrible result. And the scriptures seem to testify. There's all these these strange stories about just even what you know, um, just like the nature of Satan and demons, like they. Um, they, they're, 
they're horrible, cruel creatures. Whereas, you know, God is an infinite fountain of, of goodness and love and is always trying to give himself and to sow goodness and to fill with goodness. There seems to be this other longing in, in demons where they want to like crush and kill and destroy and torment and hurt, you know? So you have a, a demon possessing a little boy and the father says, Every time it comes into him, it, it throws him into the fire, you know? And it's like, what, what is that? What, why would it want to take a little boy and throw it into the fire? Or, or why would all these demons that got cast out of this man go into this herd of swine and then immediately run off of a cliff and drown themselves, you know? Or why, why would a, 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 that same group of demons manifest themselves in that man of, of running around naked and and slashing himself with stones and cutting himself and beating everybody that came near him, you know? And I think the answer to that is because we have this, we have this willing creature that God vanished from. And so now instead of, there is no will to goodness anymore. There is no will to bless and to love and to help. There is just this will to harm and hate and kill and torture. And and that's just because, Anything that's not that comes from God. Do you know what I mean? And we, we, could, we could look at this now demon standing in front of us and just sort of, we could maybe, we could feel like we could with the holiness and the purity and the love. We could feel this sense that there was, um, there was this inward source in him. There was this like, this inward filling of him of something that was black and dark and awful and evil and lied and hurt and destroyed and um, was a murderer and a liar. You know, like the scriptures talk about how Satan, when he, when he lies, he speaks his own language um, because that's, you know, there's not two kinds of truth anywhere like more than there's two kinds of goodness, you know? And so you take, the truth of God out of a demon and he becomes the father of lies. And even when he's telling the truth, he's lying, sort of. You know what I mean? So the demons say, we know who you are, the holy son of God, which is the words were true statements and yet Jesus said, be quiet. And because they were, it's like Paul says, you can't, you can't say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Like the words don't make it true. And so everything they'd say is a lie. Everything they do, we're, we're where the father is the the giver of life, Satan becomes the murderer from the beginning and manifests in all of his children, whether they're physically murdering or or murdering in some other way. And so what a horrible change we would have witnessed in this angel. A few minutes ago, we were basking in the, the love and the glory and the purity, and now we just see this like horrible, monstrous, dark life filling it, and it wants to kill and hurt and destroy um, and so, so I say that because then I think it's interesting, like, having imagined that change, to sort of think about some of the ways that we, we perceive what salvation is, what redemption is. Um, because that, I mean... It's a, it's a horrible existence to be a demon. It's got to be, right? Full of fear, full of rage, full of um, this, like, where there used to be, like, love and holiness, there's, like, there's torment and anguish and perplexity and fear and despair. And, 
and a, a desire to hurt. But I, I've, I've, I would assume that when they succeed in hurting something, they don't like feel any better. They just want to keep hurting, you know? And, um, so you could say that this demon like fell into this hellish condition, like his, his own nature, the whole, his own self life, um, was a horrible torment to him, you know, because he had nothing of God. Um, and we could also say, I think rightly so, that his decision to renounce God and turn away from God was also a horrible sin against God, right? That was an offense against a holy God. Um, but then if you, if you kind of imagine in that moment that God is like a judge who says, oh, I've been, I've been offended against, I've been sinned against by this angel that turned his back from me, um, if, if salvation or redemption or forgiveness was only just this idea that God could say, that God said, well, it would be within my power and my right to never forgive that angel for turning from me, but I choose instead to forgive the offense that he turned from me, that doesn't change the state and the nature and the life of that angel that is now a demon. Do you see what I mean? Like we could say to that demon, hey, demon, good news. The father doesn't hold against you that sin. He's forgiven you that sin of turning from him. But th- does that take the, take, does that make the demon back into an angel? Do you know what I mean? Like it, it doesn't. It's probably, a, it's wonderful and a good thing, I guess, that the father and his mercy forgives that sin. But the demon has a problem, which is that, his inward nature is full of self and hell and darkness and and that's his that's his problem do you know what i mean and um that's his hell and and i'm not saying that to say that hell is not a real place i'm just saying that um there's a very real sense in which his inward nature is his torment and his horror and his fear and his anguish right so you can't just say you're forgiven of that one sin of turning, you know, turning away from God or maybe of many sins. The demon has a problem. And you can't also say that, okay, the, the, let's say the father could do something, some act of great kindness and great um, love that somehow made it so that the father could say to this demon, you are, you are welcome to come back into heaven, Right? If we could somehow imagine this idea that, you know, heaven were like a, a place and then all of a sudden this demon standing there gets to go back into heaven, it doesn't do him any good to be in a place if, if he is that horrible, if that inward life in him is that horrible vacuum without God. You know what I mean? So it's kind of like this thought process. If you put the demon back into heaven, he's still a demon. You know what I mean? And he's still... He still has a horrible, self-tormenting, anguishing, awful life. And that's because of the nature that's alive and works in him. And um, So why, why, what's the purpose of this whole thing? <laughs> um, I, I say all that because... It just that day I was sitting there and I've thought about it since then. I was chatting with Ryan about it a couple of days ago too. Um, that 
that kind of like understanding the clarity of being able to think outside of ourselves and imagine like, yeah, you can't just like tell this demon he's forgiven. You can't just let him back into heaven in his state, in the state that he's in. That's not like his problem isn't something like outward. It's not something outside of himself that just some words can fix, you know, like, oh, this person is angry at you, but now he's not angry at you. Okay, now my problem goes away. His problem is like inward and essential. It's the like the it's the thing that's alive in him and filling him. It's the thing that's that's um, that's not in him. You know what I mean? It's a it's an inward essential problem, and that that is like his his cure has to be in the same place and dealing with the same thing where the, the problem is. Does that, does that make sense? I mean, I think it's, it's very simple. I don't, I don't claim to be saying something complicated here, but that is, um, that is very, very similar, uh, or, or maybe it's precisely the same. I'm not sure. I think it's similar enough to be incredibly helpful and instructive in our understanding of our condition and our salvation. Um, because we are not that different from that angel. Um, I think kind of maybe the difference it has to do with the fact that we are like alive in this natural world that partakes somewhat of the goodness of God. Like, the, you know, there's that scripture where Jesus says, the, the, the fa- your father in heaven in his goodness is, is giving sun and rain and doing, spreading all of his goodness to everybody, whether they are like not just the people who love him, it says, like, be like your heavenly father. He doesn't just love those who love him, but he loves and gives himself with sun and rain and all these other blessings to everybody in hopes that they would turn and repent. But um, I think that might be the only reason why mankind in his fallen state doesn't become the same, like, horrible vacuum of nothing but nothing but hell in us like a demon did, you know, is because we kind of temporarily we're able to like live in in the body in a natural world and partake somewhat at least like outwardly of uh, some of the goodness of God reaching us through creation you know and that's also dangerous though because if we if we um, if that's all like if that's all our life ever is is sort of making it through our years and months and our months and years and decades kind of being okay with the good parts of natural creation and getting over the bad parts and we never feel and know and let the Lord deal with what is truly our inward and eternal and spiritual problem, then we will have wasted the entire reason why I think we have a life and an existence in the body, a place to work out our salvation. Um, So... We're, I think we're much more like the angel that has turned into a demon. And so the, the remedy for us, um, I, I think this just helps us understand the remedy. I think it helps us understand the nature of salvation. I think it helps us understand the use of the scriptures um, and helps us also shed some of like the wrong ideas about salvation um, not again we've talked a bunch about not not because ideas matter in themselves not because the lord is going to quiz us on our doctrines did you have your idea of salvation correct then come into heaven no you had it false no it's because the 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 correct understandings of these things either fuel or 
or inhibit the the way that we live that um, that helps us either work with God in the removal of the problem or resist God in in the removal of the problem during the time of our life. Um, yeah, I think there, there's, a, there's a lot more we could say about that, but we we are like that. We have our our problem isn't something we don't just need a pardon like like. Salvation is often, um, sometimes kind of in the church in the world, the primary metaphor, the primary kind of analogy or understanding um, that is, is kind of reached for when you discuss salvation it's, is it's like a pardon. Um, and not totally without foundation, I don't think. But at least I know in my experience in, the, in Christianity, it was a lot like, oh, we're like this horrible offender. We're like this horrible, um, you know, prisoner who is due to go to like life in prison or go to the electric chair or something like that and we receive a pardon we receive a you you know you get to go free um but that's a little bit like i was trying to say with the demon we can't just like pardon the demon without changing the state of his nature without changing the inward life of him um and i i think that sort of like prevailing metaphor of like just a simple pardon completely kind of misses the heart of the problem and helps us uh, persist in kind of uh, be confident in a wrong way of, of living. Um, and, and that again, that's not to say that there isn't a great truth, I think, to the fact of a pardon, this, this free mercy, this free forgiveness, this willingness of God the Father to receive back into his kingdom all those who have greatly revolted and offended and who hate him and who have no reason to feel like they deserve any kindness or mercy or anything from God. Like he absolutely opens his heart in a complete and full and perfect pardon. But I think it's much more the pardon that I was describing like in October where it's the pardon like at the end of the Civil War where the king says, everyone who took up arms against me will not be hung for treason and you have an open door to return into a rightful subjection to the government of the land. Um, but that's not a pardon that, that doesn't pardon people while they still hold on to their muskets and they're still wearing their Confederate coats and they're still living in opposition to the government that is trying to pardon them. You know what I mean? So we talked, without rehashing all that, but we talked about like the pardon is incredible and necessary, but it's a. Um, it is sort of like a proclamation of a willingness and an, an ability and a possibility for everyone in this state of enmity against God to lay down their gun, to take off their coat, and to begin to humbly return under the government that they were revolting against and that they were literally fighting against and to become meek subjects of that government. And for, for those people, the pardon is pure and perfect and infinite, you know what I mean? But the, 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 somebody who hangs on to his gun and hangs on to his coat, he can't just say, but the pardon, the pardon, you know? The pardon's not for him in that state, you know what I mean? Um, and the church, I think, frequently kind of pushes this metaphor of just like kind of a judicial pardon, something that happened outside of us, whereas we have an inward problem and we need an inward solution. Um, 
And yes, we need a pardon, but more than that, we need, um, we need something to come back alive in us in the place where self and darkness and hell came to life. You know, like if it were possible for an angel that had fallen, if it were possible for a demon to be saved, which it doesn't appear like it is, at least the scripture doesn't make that clear to us, but if it were possible for a demon to be saved, I think it just, we, we intuitively would understand, looking at that horrible demon standing over there, that heaven would have to come to life in it again. And it would have to cast out self and darkness. And it would have to like grow up and fill from the inside out again. That would be... That it seems like the only way that there could be salvation for that thing. Because that's, that's what he lost. See, like, when you understand what he lost, is he lost the indwelling life and glory and love and power of God, of living in subjection to him. And so if he's going to be redeemed, restored, saved, then that which he lost has to be found in the same place where it was and needs to like grow up and return to its former state and power and fullness in that thing. You know, and that's what we would we would sit there if we had compassion for this demon. We say like, "Oh, your only hope is if that glorious light finds an entrance in you again, and then grows up and displaces all of that." That's your only hope. And we might say to that angel, "This book might help you with that." You know, but it only it's only a help to that demon if he can read it and see that it points him on every page to the fact that he needs heaven to come to life again in him. It's not a help to him. If we handed this book to that demon and he just started reading it and going, oh, now I know more than my neighbor. Did that help him at all? You know? Or if it said, oh, I'm pretty sure if I interpret this verse, it means that um, I'm going to be okay you know, in my current state. It didn't help him at all. You know what I mean? Or if he, if he grabbed it and he said, like, oh, this makes me feel like I need to be, you know, more violent to Lydia or, to, you know, like somehow all these different things you could do with it. We'd say, oh, no, you're doing the wrong thing with it. The, every page of this book is meant to show you that the problem is self living where God is supposed to live and to turn you to the possibility now that this is where the analogy breaks down because i don't think demons have this possibility but for us like that's like if we go back to the garden of eden and we are we are able to watch adam and eve fall um, from this state of glory and life and perfection and fellowship and union and walking with god in the cool of the garden um they they had a horrible fall and Right from the very beginning when the Lord uh, started dealing with them, he started dealing with them according to a, to a, you could say according to a pardon, because from the very beginning, he had a, a willingness to receive them back into his kingdom. And we read that the, in, in some sense, that Jesus is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, that he had even you know, made provision in his perfect foreknowledge and, and wisdom. And so he... He immediately with Adam and Eve, he stands ready to receive them back. And what, he, what it seems like he begins to hint at from the very beginning of the scripture is the, the, a, a kind of salvation that would have been the only hope for our theoretical demon, right? Um, which is 
something sown in the heart, a seed, a little, a little piece, a little, a little um, how can you say it, almost like a, a secret agent or a spy sent from the world of heaven back in. Like that's like if we could do that to the demon, if we could say, okay, you are in, you are in a horrible state and a condition and the only possibility for you is that heaven would come to life in you again, the demon can't just agree with that and say like, yeah, okay, where's it going to get the life of heaven from again? You know, it doesn't have that. It's not a part of its being. It's, it's not like a, a fingernail that it can start growing. Like it's, it's nothing but hell and a demon, you know. But if, if God was able to take a little, like, a little piece of heaven and of his, his, his life and his nature and his grace and his light and his spirit and sow it into, into that dark land of his heart as a, as a possibility of, of it growing and overcoming then we would be able to say to the demon, okay, there is, a, there is a hope for you because if God had left you to yourself, there was nothing, there's no possibility of you ever coming out of your condition. But now God in his love and mercy has put this little invader in you, this little tiny thing in your heart and it has the possibility. It's like a little seed. It's tiny and despicable and easy to overlook and easy to easy to put into an environment where it does nothing and easy to trample and crush under your feet when it's barely grown. It's easy to snuff out when it's a little baby. But it's in you and your only hope is to give yourself to that, that invader, that um, secret agent from heaven, that little piece of, of love and life and glory. And if you will give yourself to it, if you will yield to it, then that thing will begin to grow and it will begin to come into dominion and power and glory in you. Um, and that's what I'm trying to say is that that's, that's like what the father began to speak from the very beginning with, the, with Adam and Eve. He says, there's a there's a, a seed of the woman that's going to bruise um, the, the serpent seed. And from the very beginning, we see that God didn't leave them with, without a, like a remedy, without a solution, without something striving in them, without a possibility of like another thing they could find in the, in the depths of their soul that would go a different direction, you know? So you can, I always think it's so amazing that like the very first, you know, two human beings that proceed out of our fallen parents, um, Cain and Abel, they like show this forth so clearly, you know, that one, um, that one manifests like the nature of the devil, you know, one lies and says, my brother, I don't know what you're talking about. Am I my brother's keeper? And murders and hates his hates his brother because his deeds are evil, and somehow the other one Abel is able to like Abel is able to like yield to this implanted seed of the woman and begins to to work righteousness by that grace sown in his heart by that that bruiser of the serpent that God gave him, um, and. We can see we can see the the rising up in one of those men, the thing that God sowed, and we can see the other man 
just manifesting the, the fallen nature, the dark nature. And, be, and just to make it abundantly clear that it wasn't because of some predetermined decision that God had decided that Cain was doomed to hell by a, like some irrevocable decree, the Lord pleads with Cain and says, like, why, why is your countenance fallen? Don't you see that, um, you know, when his, his sacrifice is not accepted, God pleads with him and says, um, if you do well, you will be accepted too. But sin is crouching at your door, but you must master it. And so he turns his attention to the fact that there's this thing that's trying to devour him. But there's also a possibility of him overcoming it, not, not by his own strength, but by the bruiser of the serpent that God had put in him. And um, that's... I, th- I think it's really, really... Again, not because of doctrine, not because of ideas, but it's really like important that we kind of understand the nature. If we understand the nature of our problem and the fall, the nature of redemption, then I think it completely will... What's so important about it is that it puts the right perspective on our lives. It puts the right perspective on what these 80 years are about. And... It, it will it will protect us from some foolish false things of of saying that like, well I, I prayed this prayer when I was you know twenty five or um, or something like that and therefore I'm safe and I feel comfortable and confident to go on just trying to like get as much of the good things of this world before I die like that's not that's not okay that's not that's not real that's um, and, and it would make us. I think be really sober and serious about the fact that we stand in time with this gift of God sown into our demonic hearts and we have this this possibility in this period where we can by by that by that precious gift willing and working in us we are able to work out our salvation and if we could see and feel that possibility and the depths to which it actually changes our nature from the inside out and doesn't just, not just words papering over a problem or like Jer- Jeremiah always says, peace, peace, where there is no peace, but like an inward power and leavening grace that is meant to overcome from the inside out our, our self, our pride, our everything of self and begin to uh, cause the life and the glory of Jesus Christ to actually manifest and grow and reign in us. Maybe I want to just read a couple verses from 2 Corinthians and I think I'll probably end with this. I think it's 2 Corinthians. Actually, now I'm doubting. I'll find it then. So I guess it's at the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6. So if you're in 2 Corinthians, um, maybe I'll start in verse 18. Um, it's right after the passage about if, if anyone is in Christ, he is in a new creation. Um, and then it says... Now all things, verse 18, all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. 
Um, I think I, that I think that reconciling us to himself has to do with that, like the, the, the fact that Jesus Christ and his offering, which procured us salvation, like that is the somehow the means by which God can like open up his heart to every returning prodigal repentant sinner, you know? So he stands in a, in a, a, a condition and a position of reconciliation to us. Like we don't have, um, like we don't have to worry about if we return to the Lord in repentance and, um, and humility, we don't have to worry that the father is in a condition not to receive us, right? Like he's like the father in the story of the prodigal son. He, he's watching and hoping and running to us and weeping upon us when we return. So the, by, by the work of Jesus Christ, um, God has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. And I think God stands in a, in a state of reconciliation to the whole world in a sense. That doesn't mean that the whole world is reconciled to him, though. You know what I mean? Um, but from his perspective, he, he is um, willing to receive all. Because, because then Paul goes on and says, so God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, one of these places, I used to know this better. I think it's maybe the next verse. We'll go on. It says, that is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. I think, again, that's kind of a fuller, I, I believe, description of what I'm talking about, that the, the whole world, he was, he was doing a work which allowed him to, um, to, be, to forgive and to receive anyone and everyone. But, but it didn't stop there. It wasn't like this kind of universal salvation that is unconditionally applied against people's will. This didn't like all of a sudden turn every human being into um, somebody who was saved. Now, some people take some of these passages and say, Paul seems to be saying that everyone, you know, but Jesus didn't say that. Jesus said, many are going to come to me and say, Lord, Lord, and I'm going to say, I didn't know you. And many are going to walk on the broad way that leads to destruction. But nevertheless, God was in Christ Reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their, transpass- their trespasses to them. And has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Um, and that's where I think there's maybe, there's maybe more than one way you can think about this. I think it's common to just think about Paul saying, maybe Paul is saying, well, that's, that's his apostolic commission. Like, oh, he gave me this, this job to do of to like go around the ancient world and tell people about, salvation but and I think that is definitely true like God did that but I, I think he's he's probably speaking more broadly that he's saying God did this work in Christ reconciling himself to the world and then to all the world he commits to us a word of reconciliation you hear the difference like that the that that heavenly invader I was talking about is very frequently referred to under the name of a word, an implanted word, the word of life, the word of the gospel, um, the word of God, which is an imperishable seed, Peter says. And so Paul says he's committed to us, he's given to us a word of reconciliation. And this is where I think it's so neat. Verse 20, he goes on. He says, 
Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And so that's, I think, the other half is like God stands in the state of reconciliation and pardon and willingness to receive. But from our, there's another side to that, which is he has given to us this, this word of reconciliation, this life, this grace, this seed, this possibility of salvation. And it's not guaranteed. We have to, we have to make our whole lives about um, turning from self and, and dying to self and yielding to that word of grace. And so the, the proper, like, the, the proper apostolic ministry or maybe anybody's ministry is not like nobody can save somebody else. I can't get inside of you or you, but we could sort of do what Paul does and plead with people and say like, oh, be reconciled by that implanted word. Be reconciled by the word of reconciliation implanted in you. And he goes on to say, uh, chapter six, verse one, He says, we then, as workers together with him, we plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. And that's the, I think that'll be the sentence kind of pronounced over anyone who ultimately is not saved is there'll be be nobody who goes into everlasting punishment who the Lord will not be able to say, I committed to you the word of reconciliation I gave you grace. And not only did I give you grace, but by many inward and outward means, I pleaded with you for your whole life, breaking your happiness in worldly things, testifying to you in outward and inward things and relational things and conflicts and everything about the vanity of the world in a thousand different ways, pleading with us not to live our whole lives having the grace of God and doing nothing with it. Like like that demon saying like if we could if we could if we could sow a little bit of heaven in him and he spent his whole life ignoring it would say oh you received it in vain it was committed to you it had the power of overcoming everything that's wrong in you and you wasted it and I think that if you just kind of let your mind kind of go over all the parables and even just all the I mean, the scriptures, that's why I was saying at the beginning, the scriptures seem to testify of this, like from the beginning to the end, of all these pictures of a, a seed sown, a, a, um, you know, a Moses sown into a dark land meant to, to go and to redeem and rescue and pull out and to um, all the parables about the growth of this, the possibility of, of having this heavenly talent given you and then... And, and then having it taken from you at the end of your life and God saying, you did nothing with it. It didn't, it, the thing I gave you was meant to grow and, and you received it in vain. It just, and it, it'll be taken from you, you know, because it wasn't given to you just so you could say, oh, I've got it. It was given to you because you had a problem, which is you had this life of self and hell alive in you and so I gave it to you so that it could supplant it. It could be like Jacob, the supplanter, the one who, the second born who takes the place of the firstborn, who rises up and kicks out, you know, the, the um, Isaac who casts out Ishmael. That's why I gave it to you. you and you just, you, you just said, oh, I have it. And I went to a church that made me feel comfortable where we just all talked about how we've got it. 
But did it rise up and kick out Ishmael in you? Did it, did it do what it was meant to do? If it didn't, you received it in vain. And I don't care if you say, Lord, I went to church. Lord, I did this. Lord, I preached. I did miracles. I did mission trips. You, you, it doesn't change the fact that you still have the same problem the demon had. You know? And so... Um, maybe we'll open it up for for uh, some conversation after that. Uh, let me make it possible for folks to unmute themselves one moment here.